All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the CYDC podcast. I am your host, Mike. And I'm Arushi. And on today's episode, we will be exploring addiction part one. So we are actually going to have a part two released on Monday and uh but we'll keep that a secret for our listeners um we'll keep it as a surprise it's something i'm i'm pretty excited about mm-hmm. yes definitely me too it'll be something new for for the both of us to do and something new for our, our listeners and that's all we're gonna give away and maybe it'll be a special guest maybe who knows <laughs> <laughs> all right so Rushi, would you like to kick us off and just kind of um set the groundwork for what an addiction is yeah. Um, but before I get started, I think we just discussed doing a quick disclaimer just about the the content for today's episode it might be triggering or upsetting for some folks. So we just wanted to give that heads up ahead of time. Um, so if you prefer to skip this episode over or listen to something else or engage in some self-care coping skills after whatever you feel fits you best, we just wanted to give a heads up about today's content. But yes, thank you, Mike. So I will dive into what is an addiction now. So to kick us off, an addiction is a disease that impacts one's brain and behavior, which people have difficulty or simply can't resist the urge to use either substances or alcohol. But this can even include things like gambling, sex, shopping, and other things as well. So the main component of addiction is not being able to resist these pleasurable experiences despite knowing what the consequences will be. And in fact, the word addiction or addict comes from the Latin word addictus, meaning enslaved by or bound to. So when we look at the difference between drug or alcohol abuse and addiction, is drug slash alcohol abuse is when you consume more than a normal amount of a substance to feel good or ease stress, but you are able to stop using it or still have the ability to alter your habits. On the other end of the spectrum, addiction is when you can't stop regardless of the impact of the substance or the activity on your health, your finances, and your relationships. Actually, back in the 1930s, researchers initially thought that people developed addictions because they were morally flawed or lacked willpower, and they thought it could be treated through punishment or encouraging them to develop the willpower to break the addiction. Obviously now, thankfully, lots has changed and We now know that addiction is a chronic disease that actually alters your brain structure and function. It essentially hijacks the brain and goes through a series of changes that start with recognizing the pleasurable experience and ends with the drive towards a compulsive behavior. Yeah, and I think that's kind of an important thing to talk about as well in terms of talking about the um, progression of our understanding of addiction and kind of Mm -hmm. where we started and where we are now. I think that's um, really important context um, to think about, for sure. Definitely. And just to kind of look at some statistics of addiction, and so nearly 23 million Americans, or close to one in 10, are addicted to alcohol or other drugs, um, but only 10% receive treatment, which is kind of um, an astounding fact. Um, more than two-thirds of those with an addiction um, abuse alcohol as a substance. Uh, The top three drugs causing an addiction are marijuana, opioid pain relievers, and cocaine. Uh, Drug overdose deaths have more than tripled since 1990. 
around 20% of Americans with depression or anxiety disorders have um, also have a substance use disorder. So they, they are somewhat linked. And more than 90% of people with an addiction start drinking alcohol or using drugs before they were 18. So Arushi, is there any surprising facts in here for you that um, that were kind of surprising? Yeah, I I think for me, and I've, I've heard this before, but it always kind of takes me by surprise, but that the most, I guess, the substance that people are most commonly addicted to is alcohol, I think always surprises me a little bit. Because I think there's this notion that more people are addicted to either more, like more hard substances or things that are a little bit more like taboo, but I mean, alcohol is found in so many people's homes and is consumed by so many people kind of casually. And I think for me personally, even though it's a, a statistic I knew about before, it always takes me a little bit by surprise to know that it's one of the most commonly used and I guess misused substances. And I can even speak a little bit from my experiences um, for listeners of the podcast who wouldn't know my my dad um, suffered from an alcohol addiction throughout the first kind of half of my childhood. Mm. Um, he's been sober since, I think it's been 16 years mm. um, he's been sober. Um, but I can kind of attest to that in terms of alcohol isn't really thought of usually as um, an addiction or in terms of like severity of addiction. Um, but I know from my experiences and my family's experiences, we definitely saw the impacts of an alcohol addiction. Um, and maybe part of that is because everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, but um, a lot of people drink alcohol kind of casually. So it might not be mm -hmm. seen as a hard substance or um, yeah. something like that when comparing it to something like cocaine or any opioids or, and stuff like that. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, something that I kind of reflect on um, kind of as you were saying that as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, I think in general, with more commonly accepted, commonly used substances like alcohol, it can be really easy to miss the signs of when it kind of goes from you know, casual consumption to misuse and ultimately addiction. And with that in mind, some of the general warning signs of a substance addiction include an urge to use the substance every day or engage in the activity every day, multiple times a day taking more of the substance than you actually want to and for longer. And some of them say kind of building up that tolerance is a part of the process as well. Using substances or engaging in the addictive behavior, even if it causes difficulties with your loved ones, your family, friends, um, and work as well. Not caring for yourself and feeling physically sick when you try to quit. And there actually have been cases where people, when they've experienced withdrawals, have either passed away from it, which is very unfortunate and scary to think about and really highlights the importance of gradual reduction, um, but also just suffer a lot physically when they try to um, take themselves off a substance, which is why in some cases going cold turkey simply does not work, which I think a lot of people might think that's the go-to to just stop using something. But in a lot of the cases, you are actually putting yourself at a lot of harm if you try to do that. And while a lot of these signs that are relatable for substance um, addictions, they can also be extended to other kinds of addictions like alcohol, where the individual uses the substance often enough that it impacts their daily lives and are not able to stop. And actually, News and Health describes it as people with addiction lose control over their actions. 
They crave and seek out substances, alcohol, or other substances or behaviors, no matter the cost, even if it risks damaging friendships, hurting family, or losing their jobs. And I think a lot of this, again, has to do with the way um, substance misuse and addiction can quite literally alter your brain chemistry and ultimately change all of your behaviors, even if some ways you're not intending for it to or you don't actually want it to. For sure. And I think that's a perfect segue into talking about addiction and the brain. And so this is actually probably one of the biggest sections that we've ever had about the brain in terms of all of our podcast episodes, which was surprising to me. Um, But to start, um, addiction is a long lasting brain disease. And so the brain changes with addiction and it takes a lot of work to get it back to its normal state. In fact, much like we mentioned earlier, addictions hijack the brain and even destroys regions that help um, help us survive. And so a healthy brain rewards healthy behaviors like exercising, eating, or socializing with others by switching on brain circuits that make you feel good, which will motivate you to repeat those behaviors. And so this is something called the pleasure principle, where the brain registers all pleasure in the same way, whether it's from a drug, winning money, or even eating a great meal. And the brain releases our old friend dopamine, a neurotransmitter, in the nucleus acumens. Nucleus acumens. All right, maybe we'll have to have Google help us out in the future. We'll see. Nucleus accumbens. Uh, and um, and so the nucleus accumbens is a cluster of nerve cells underneath the cerebral cortex called the brain's pleasure center. And so all drugs from nicotine to heroin will cause a big release of dopamine into our brain's pleasure center. And the faster the dopamine they release, the more likely the drug will be abused. And so addictions hijacks the happy circuits in our brain. I did air quotes, but no one can see me air quotes. The happy circuits in our brain to reward us and make us want more while making us feel stressed when we aren't using that substance. And so additionally, repeated use of drugs can damage the part of our brain, which is essential for decision making. And this area is the prefrontal cortex. People addicted to alcohol or drugs have decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex, which would impact decision making ability to not take the drug, even if the consequence is very high. And so kind of back to our friend dopamine, it also plays a factor in learning and memory, which is a big component of addiction. And so dopamine interacts with another transmitter called glutamate to overtake um, the brain's system of reward-related learning. This system is typically important because it links the activities needed for survival, like eating, with pleasure and reward. The reward circuit includes areas involved with motivation and memory and addictive substances and behaviors overloads this circuit. And so repeated use of addictive substances causes the nerve cells in the nucleus, accumbens, and the prefrontal cortex to communicate and cause us to like that substance and motivates us to seek that pleasure again. So kind of you can see this cycle of why an addiction might occur. Exactly. And knowing this, after repeated use for an extended period of time, our brain adapts to make that substance less pleasurable. And as I mentioned earlier, build the tolerance for that substance. And the reason this happens is because typically rewards come with time and effort. 
But with addictive substances and behaviors, our brains are overwhelmed and flooded, and there is not an efficient way to handle it. So instead, the brain produces less dopamine over time or trims those dopamine receptors, almost like turning down the volume on a speaker when it gets too loud. And in fact, addictive substances can release two to 10 times the amount of dopamine and do so much quicker. And the result is that people experiencing addiction have to take more of that substance to receive the same high or receive the same rewards, quote unquote, as before. And then the compulsion to take the substance is what takes over. So the pleasure for the addictive substance or behavior goes away, but yet the want and the memory to recreate that effect continues, which is why some substances people actually say can be addictive even after taking them just once. These memories create condition responses based on certain cues in the environment, which is partially why people who develop addictions risk relapse even after years of abstinence. And with addictions, kind of like Mike mentioned, it is a cycle and a cycle of highs and lows. So once someone stops taking the drug, there can be really, really difficult mental, physical, and emotional reactions that leaves the individual in distress and with symptoms that cannot be ignored, which is known as withdrawal. At the point of withdrawal with heroin, for example, someone who stops using it feels intense cravings, depression, anxiety, and sweating. And much of this is due to the rewiring of the brain after extended heroin use. And when looking at addiction and kind of the different age groups, as Mike mentioned earlier, 90% of people who experience substance misuse have started using the substance before the age of 18, so when they were a teenager. And knowing this, teens are actually more vulnerable to developing an addiction because their brain is not fully yet developed, especially in the prefrontal cortex, which is important in decision-making and risk-taking. The pleasure circuits also work extra hard in making substances or behaviors more rewarding. And I know we're kind of talking about age here as one of the potential risk factors, given that many individuals at least experiment before the age of 18 but there are many other factors that do come into play in the, the development of an addiction or an addictive behavior. Definitely. And I think the one of my takeaways from this section is just understanding the cycle of addiction and why that might occur. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I loved this section a lot because it gave me a greater understanding of some of my dad's struggles as well, and maybe mm -hmm. like potentially why they were occurring. Yeah. And having that understanding of the brain for me kind of helped um, helped me have an understanding of what my dad was going through as well, kind of behind the scenes um, as well, which is yeah. was interesting. Absolutely. All right. And so now that we talked about the brain, we will move on to some of the risk factors for having an, ad an addiction. And so it is said that the four stages of addiction are experimentation, regular use, regular use, I don't know why regular was such a hard word for me to say, but um, dependency and addiction. And so while these labels effectively summarize the stages of addiction, we wanted to discuss what often happens before the experimentation stage, even before that even begins, and some of the risk factors or precursors that might make someone vulnerable to experiencing an addiction. So the first one is genetics. And one of the major risk factors for addiction is heredity. And in fact, the National Institute on Drug Abuse states that as much as half of a person's risk of addiction to alcohol, drugs, or nicotine comes down to genetics. 
And this is why it is common for those with family members who have experienced addiction to experience addiction themselves. In addition, those with quote unquote bunny ears, addictive personalities may be more at risk of experiencing addiction in different forms. For example, a person with a parent who experiences alcohol dependency may refrain from consuming alcohol, but may experience addiction to gambling or drugs instead. And the next one is trauma. And so addiction is often a response to past trauma, whether someone realizes it or not. Ideally, making the connection between trauma and addiction can highlight how to recognize when past stress or abuse plays a role in substance misuse. These connections also show the importance of connecting trauma and substance misuse treatment. The connection between trauma and addiction is relatively straightforward. Being exposed to abuse, stress, injury, or shock at a young age can cause a variety of mental health issues, including the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD. As a result, many youth or young people turn to substance abuse to deal with these negative effects. In many cases, the substance misuse turns into an addiction. But it is equally important to understand that substance abuse in any form can also put people at risk for secondary trauma. Simply put, trauma puts people at risk for substance abuse and substance abuse puts people at risk for trauma. So I'm gonna say that again. Simply put, trauma puts people at risk for substance abuse and substance abuse puts people at risk for trauma. This can either be as a direct result of addiction or due to the impact that substance abuse and addiction have on the brain's ability to deal with stress. Some studies have found that those who are already victims of substance abuse or addiction are less able to cope with trauma in a healthy way. Alcohol or drug misuse essentially impairs a person's brain and body functions. Because of this, individuals who are already addicted or engaged in substance abuse are less able to deal with the effects of a traumatic event. According to one study, people diagnosed with a substance use disorder were twice as likely to develop PTSD after experiencing trauma than people with no history of substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're kind of building on those risk factors. Um, I know we talked about age earlier, but again, with early use, age is absolutely one of the risk factors for addiction. And the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism conducted a survey that shows that young adults from the ages of 18 to 24 were more likely to engage in substance misuse. If a person starts using substances or alcohol or engaging in certain behaviors when they are young, it may have an effect on their brain development and make them more susceptible to mental health concerns and addiction as they get older. And lastly, at least for our list, but there are many risk factors, um, other mental health concerns. So underlying mental health concerns can increase a person's risk factors for addiction. Likewise, addiction can increase the severity of existing mental health conditions, creating a bit of a cycle that causes one's addiction to progress rapidly and with severe effects. A person may feel as though using drugs or alcohol decreases their symptoms for some time, but addiction will only make things worse in the long run. Risk factors for addiction also include other medical conditions. So for example, a person who takes prescription pain medications following a surgery, which is very common, may be at risk of prescription drug addiction. 
An illness or injury can change one's lifestyle and many, experience who ex many individuals who experience opioid dependency actually had their first experience with an opioid through a prescription from a doctor. So knowing this, we feel that there is a responsibility on medical professionals and the pharmaceutical industry to be responsible when prescribing opioids and other addictive medications, even like anti-anxiety medications, to consider prescribing less addictive medications when possible, as well as properly educate their patients and clients on the risks associated with taking certain medications. Because you don't know what will happen once they finish their medications, if they go seek out more, if they find other substances to replace the effect. So a lot of the time, it's better to avoid prescribing those medications when possible, but in cases where you can't, education and harm reduction and prevention are the ways to go. Definitely. And even on the topic of treatment, I think um, one of the important things in tackling an addiction or helping someone overcome an addiction is like based on a lot of these risk factors, including trauma and other mental health challenges, is it's important to tackle those mental health challenges as well, rather than just trying to stop the person from using that substance. So I think really like focusing on multiple areas is, is important. And so kind of transitioning to treatment, um, it'll look different for everyone, depending on the individual's needs. There's really not a one size fits all approach to treatments for addiction. And that's okay because there are multiple treatment approaches. Detoxification is normally the first step in treatment. And this involves clearing a substance from the body and limiting withdrawal reactions. In 80% of cases, a treatment clinic will use medications such as methadone to reduce withdrawal symptoms according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. If a person is addicted to more than one substance, they will often need medications to reduce withdrawal symptoms for each one. This can be done in a facility where a person is monitored to ensure that they safely get a substance out of their system. These facilities can either be with or without the aid of medical interventions and discharge planning is provided. Next up is counseling. And so therapy might occur on a one-to-one -one group or family basis, depending on the needs of the individual. It is usually intensive at the outset of treatment with the number of sessions gradually reducing over time as symptoms improve. So different types of therapy include cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps people recognize and change ways of thinking that have associations with substance use, family therapy designed to help improve family function around an adolescent or teen with a substance-related disorder, motivational interviewing, which maximizes an individual's willingness to change and make adjustments to behaviors, and motivational incentives that encourage abstaining through substances um, through positive reinforcement. And so that's counseling and we covered detoxification. And so now we're gonna move on to community treatment. So services in a community treatment facility can be offered in a variety of settings, such as someone's home, in a school, or at the facility itself. Typically, community treatment options will provide an assessment, ongoing counseling, developing skills to manage substance use related issues, and developing treatment goals. And another option as well is inpatient treatment. And so a more intensive treatment where, this is a more intensive treatment where a person stays in a treatment facility for 24 hours a day. These programs can last from 21 days 
to several months. Usually, residential programs will offer group counseling, individual counseling, case management support, and family counseling if requested. These facilities can be either public or privately funded, and wait times for residential treatment really vary. Um, there's also day treatment within this inpatient treatment kind of umbrella, and this typically offers the same programming as residential treatment, but clients will go home towards the end of the day instead of staying overnight within the facility. I'm kind of building off of the community treatments and the, the counseling treatments that you mentioned, Mike, there are also recovery groups that are also incorporated within the treatments that you mentioned. So these type of groups may help the recovering individual meet others who use the same substances, which often boosts motivation to overcome the addiction, as well as reduces feelings of isolation. They can also serve as a powerful tool for education, community, and information, and some commonly known examples include Alcoholics Anonymous, so AA, as well as Narcotics Anonymous, NA, and from my understanding, there are also some groups that support the family members of those experiencing addiction as well, which can be very helpful, I think, in some cases to also reduce the feelings of isolation and create that sense of community. So lastly, I think this is less of a treatment, but more of a really, really important approach, and it is the harm reduction approach. So it's an evidence-based client-centered approach that seeks to reduce the health and social harms associated with addiction and substance use without necessarily requiring people who use substances from abstaining or stopping. So the harm reduction approach to substance use can include a series of programs, services, and practices. And something that is essential to the harm reduction approach is that it provides people who use substances a choice of how they will minimize the harm associated with that substance through non-judgmental and non-coercive strategies in order to enhance skills and knowledge to live safer and healthier lives. Harm reduction acknowledges that many individuals coping with addiction and substance use may not be in a position to remain abstinent from their substance of choice. The harm reduction approach provides an option for users to engage with peers, medical and social services in a non-judgmental way that will meet them where they are. And this approach allows for a health-oriented response to substance use and has been proven that those, who engage who, and that those who engage in harm reduction services are more likely to engage in ongoing treatment as a result of accessing these services. Some harm reduction initiatives that have also reduced bloodborne illnesses such as HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C and have also decreased the rates of deaths due to drug overdoses. So knowing all of this, some practices that take a harm reduction approach include using a nicotine patch instead of smoking, consuming water while consuming alcohol, using substances in a safe environment with someone you trust, and needle exchange programs for individuals who inject drugs. And harm reduction doesn't actually just apply to the use of substances. I mean, we engage in harm reduction in our everyday lives to minimize, minimize risk, which is the whole point of this approach. So things like wearing a helmet while riding a bike or enforcing seatbelts while driving a car. I think the good thing about taking a harm reduction approach is that one, it meets the individual where they are, but it also empowers them and gives them that choice in terms of, rather than quitting cold turkey, like we mentioned, using the substance in a safer manner and letting them know that they are supported. And while it may not outwardly sound very effective, it is actually one of the more effective approaches to treatment. And it really helps the person experiencing the addiction know that they are heard, valued, and that you don't 
know better than them, I guess, for lack of a, a better way to put it. It gives them kind of the, the front seat for how they want their treatment to be approached and how they want to slowly wean out the substance or use safer if that's their goal. These are just a few of the options available to support individuals experiencing addiction, which is important given the complexity of what an addiction is. And of course, I know we mentioned a few different treatment methods here, but it's important to note that these aren't the only treatment methods. There are a whole bunch. These are just some of the most commonly known ones. Definitely. And I think um, that the, even though these are just a few of them, I think the variety of treatments kind of speaks to the complexity of addiction as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the different types of treatments kind of speaks to that complexity, I think. Um, Absolutely. And now moving into myths about addiction. Um, so individuals experiencing addiction can stop if they want to, and that is false. This is probably one of the biggest misconceptions. And in fact, leading authorities on addiction agree that substance misuse is a chronic disease similar to heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. So there are so there are a variety of factors that go into why someone would struggle with an addiction. Life circumstances, as we mentioned before, like trauma, mental illness, or genetics can contribute, but sometimes it has nothing to do with it as well. And addiction can happen really to anyone. A person's brain chemistry can change, making it hard to control those impulses. The substance becomes a craving or an obsession that can become more important than any other aspects of life. The reward of addiction then takes over in that instance. So individuals experiencing an addiction, it cannot be stopped if they just want to. It's not a, not a factor of motivation or wanting to stop. The next myth is it is obvious when someone is experiencing an addiction. And so actually, so that's false. Actually, there are many individuals who use substances on a daily basis and continue on with their daily lives with no outward signs of substance misuse, um, and they are what we would call high functioning. Addiction comes with a lot of guilt and embarrassment, so many develop behaviors that allow them to effectively hide their addiction, at least for a period of time. And the next myth is if an individual relapses, they are back to square one. And that is false as well. So relapse is not defeat. It's a normal and even expected part of recovery for many people. The National Institute on Drug Abuse compares addiction treatment to treatment for hypertension. Both follow similar patterns of treatment, relapse, and treatment adjustment. Successful treatment for addiction typically requires continual evaluation and lapses to drug abuse do not indicate failure. Rather, they signify that treatment needs to, needs to be reinstated or adjusted or that alternate, alternate treatment is needed. And so those are just some of the myths um, about addiction. And um, I think the one that sticks out a lot to me is the fact that it's not obvious when someone is experiencing an addiction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think sometimes they can be hidden. And I know uh, with my dad, I think that was the case as well. Yeah, I definitely think that one is, I think, a tricky one to wrap our heads around, especially when it comes to our loved ones. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, you 
you can, of course, you can check up on your loved ones. You can even live with someone, but sometimes you just don't know what they're experiencing and they might not be ready to share it until the time comes or until it's necessary to. And that's why I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, it's it's nobody's fault in these cases if somebody wasn't aware. And it's it's just a tough time in general for all of those involved. And even for me, I think the biggest piece is the the first one about individuals experiencing addiction can stop if they want to. I think a lot of people have this notion that if you are addicted to a substance or you're misusing one, it's it's the person's fault. They chose to try it. They're just a lot of blame on the individual experiencing the addiction occurs, I think, a lot of the time, rather than considering the factors that might have led them to experimenting with the substance and even considering the brain's, the brain's chemistry and addiction, the way it literally changes, making it almost impossible to simply stop using something. But I think it's important to not simplify something as complicated as addiction to, to a statement like, oh, well, they could stop if they want to. Because it's simply not true and it's not that simple. And I think even the impact of addiction, like on a family system, mm-hmm. isn't like a one size fits all approach either yeah. or model. I think that there are so many factors that go into into that. And I think that includes, you know, family support, um, support at work. I know for my dad, when I reflect on his experiences with alcohol addiction, I, I think of all the people that were there to support him whether that was the church, um, my family, um, his work, his friends, like so many people cared for him to want to get better and were really there to support him and push him to kind of go get help. Um, And I even reflect on my own experiences as a kid kind of witnessing the addiction. And it's Mm -hmm. funny whenever I talk to people about this is that I don't actually remember the alcohol addiction because I wasn't really old enough to understand what an alcohol addiction was or understand Mm -hmm. that like my dad who was drinking this substance um like what it was impact it was having on him what but what i did understand was the impact that the addiction was having like on our family on my mom on us kids and kind of like really kind of giving us even though i had an amazing childhood that was like one factor that was kind of um an adverse experience for us Um, And so that's something that I always am reminded of uh, whenever I think about it is it's always interesting that as a kid, I didn't actually, I don't, didn't even know what an alcohol addiction was. And I don't, you know, I never thought like, okay, this is what he's doing is bad, but I did understand the impacts on the family system and some of the stresses that cause. So, and I know for some, some youth, it might be a little bit different, but uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely think that's a really important point that you're bringing up there, kind of in the context of children. I think children notice and pick up on a lot more than I think people give credit for. And like, like in your case, what you were mentioning in terms of maybe not knowing a lot about the addiction itself, you could see the effects on it, even as a, as a child. And I think that's really important to note, because I think a lot of the time people think children are oblivious or that they don't know what's going on, but they really do pick up and remember a lot of things. A lot of effects, I think, is mostly what kids notice. For sure. And I think, like, I know I mentioned my family being a very big protective factor for my dad and, like, mm-hmm. helping him get better. But I also often reflect on my family being a protective factor for us and, like, for, mm-hmm. for me as a kid. Um, yeah. Kind of having a second home to go to, which was my grandmother's usually, and, like, having my cousins around the corner and um, having a, even a big family, having that kind of second family was definitely a 
big boost for us um, in terms of support. And I often think like how things might've been different if that wasn't the case, right? So even I understand for myself that we, like we as in us kids also had a lot of protective factors that kind of help buffer us from um, potentially um, having some more issues as a kid, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, those are all really, really good points, especially around the protective factors and having a good social support system. And yeah, thank you for, for sharing more about that. And I, I think for today's episode, that is about it on my end. What about you, Mike? Yeah, that's it uh, about it on my hand. And I do have to think fact check myself. I think I was wrong about my dad being sober for 16 years. I think it's 15 years this year. Nice. But I'll have to I'll have to find out and I'll have to find out whether it's 15 or 16. I should know. But regardless, it's an amazing accomplishment. So I just got to exactly give that. a shout out to my pops for that. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been an amazing journey for him. And uh, best best dad that I know, that's for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 15 years is a long, long time. So it's really, really awesome for him. For sure. Uh, go Mike Sr. And it was just his birthday. Happy birthday to Mike Sr. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> That's awesome. But alrighty, um, should I dive into our fun fact for this week? Yeah, yeah. I think we got kind of off tangent. So you, oh, thanks for bringing oh. us back. <laughs> um, so our fun fact for this week, kind of going back to what we mentioned earlier about the, the Latin roots of the word with addictus. Um, the Latin definition gets support from the ancient myth of Addictus. So the myth tells the story of a slave who was set free from his master, but became so used to his chains that he wandered the land with his chains still attached, even though he could have removed them at any time. So Mike, I know you found this fun fact. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about like what your initial thoughts were when you read this? Because I think for me, it was, I mean, I know it's an ancient myth, but I thought it was a really interesting, like, almost analogy of what the experience of addiction could be but I don't know what were you thinking when you found it yeah I think just being able to picture like a physical like I don't want to say physical person but like a physical example of mm -hmm. this person who was so reliant on these chains and got used to them so much that he wanted to keep it there and I think it's kind of a good analogy for substance use and being reliant on those whatever substance that might be mm -hmm. um and yeah i don't know i just it, it gave me a, a picture of this person who had these chains on him and um could have removed them um but i shouldn't say could have removed them but didn't want to remove them because he relied on it so much mm -hmm. um and also like the kind of the analogy or I don't know if it'd be an analogy metaphor of like chains right being shackled to something yeah um, I think that is also a good picture of kind of what addiction is as well being shackled to that addiction and kind of needing help to break away from those shackles a little bit um I don't know how about you yeah I think same for me kind of having almost a picture of like a physical being um to tie into you know, this fact within the definition of addiction, the way it can manifest itself, I think is kind of what comes to mind for me when I read this. And since that was our fun fact, that means that we have reached the end of the podcast. So mm -hmm. um, thank you everyone for tuning in this week. 
If you have any questions or comments about the podcast and would like to reach out, you can email us at cydcpodcast at gmail.com. We have added resources from this podcast in the link in the descriptions. And we would like to thank Dr. Colin King for giving us this opportunity to record this podcast. The intro music was provided by Gaming Free Music on YouTube. And the outro uh, was written by Waterboy on SoundCloud. And both links are in the description below. We will see everyone next week where, we're, where we will be talking about depression. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, everyone. Bye.